The date is Friday, June 17th, and you're listening to Entertain This, a thought-provoking podcast encapsulating all things entertainment. Just in time for your school's summer reading assignment, we're talking about one of the most famous dystopian novels of all time, Brave New World. We'll discuss Aldous Huxley's vision of the future, what might have influenced his writing, and what it was like for the society of these people living in the world state. So enjoy. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to your favorite show on the internet, encapsulating all things entertainment. You know it, you love it. It's Entertain This. Entertain This. And as always, I'm Alex. I am Michael. And I am Nick. Let's talk about drinks, baby. (gasps) Yeah. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that we can be. Let's talk about drinks. Uh, Nick, What you you just held up a bottle, and I assume it's full of water. Am I correct? Oh, yeah. Nice, nice. Fresh, clean so, water from the tap. So I, I made a beverage before this uh, recording started of the mm-hmm. alcoholic variety. Um, let's, give our, let's give our listeners a little background uh, on us three. Yeah. So we're three boys. Uh, we are in the Cincinnati area. That's well known. We've talked about it before. Mm-hmm. Two of us uh, were raised, born, and raised in the uh, Commonwealth of Kentucky. Yes, sir. Um, Nick, I think you're a full Ohio send, right? Born, raised, live. <laughs> born, raised, Cincinnati, Ohio. Not a boy. <laughs> born, so, raised, manufactured, all that good stuff. <laughs> so there's there's a drink that is a little bit lesser known in our part of Kentucky, but. We have both experienced, Michael, by the name of yes. L8. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a ginger ale. It's served on tap at uh, local establishments. It's delicious. Michael's drinking a bit of it right now. He got that on tap crisp <laughs> stuff. Oh, So I, I have a couple bottles in my fridge. I like to keep my fridge stocked with some L8s because, you know, I'm a down-home Kentucky boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, like Mr. Johnny Depp himself. But there's another. He's from Kentucky. Didn't know that. Is he? Yeah, dude, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, dude. He's oh, from Kentucky. Um, <laughs> so is George Clooney. It came up good. in the recent trial. He was like, "I'm a Southern gentleman from Kentucky." Like that's what he said. First off, oh. we are not the state known for Southern gentlemen. <laughs> no, no, we are not. <laughs> Kentucky is almost not South at all. It's <laughs> just, it's just yee yee. We don't want to be yee yee, but we are. <laughs> but not the good kinds. Not the Southern gentleman kinds. Um. Anyway. Uh, another thing Kentucky is known for, uh, as we've discussed previously on this show, yes, we have, is bourbon. Bourbon. So uh, I was going to get an L eight because I was getting a little jealous of of Michael, uh, who was also drinking L eight at the time. So I went and got one, and then Michael was like, "Mix it with bourbon," and I was like, "Bet." <laughs> <laughs> so I'm drinking what we've dubbed a Kentucky Kiss, which is. Uh, it's it's two thirds ale eight one third bourbon, uh, and if you have that, pause the podcast and go make yourself a Kentucky kiss as we continue on this show because I'm gonna be sipping it the whole time. <laughs> it's gonna nurse's drink throughout the hour. That's correct, <laughs> uh, but that's enough about me and my drinking um, my my drinking habits. It's not my episode. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to talk about Alien and Bourbon this whole episode. Now, which one of you little rascals 
are going to pick up the helm and steer this ship to victory. Not me. Hey, hey, how about this? <laughs> Go ahead. Hey, drink, drink this in. I got something. You, you, got a, you got a cup of it? I'm dipping it yeah. into the river of knowledge that you're laying out in front of me. And I'll look you there. I have a, just a, a cup of it right here. <laughs> it's a cup of briny, brown, <laughs> salty water. <laughs> it's it's actually alate and <laughs> Oh, that's we just course. went over this. Nick. I'm sorry. Jeez, it's hard to see Where through the podcast ether. You know that. You're right. You look into the mirror and you got to be careful about what looks back. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh this episode is my episode and I'd like to start how I so often do by asking a non-rhetorical question for you guys here today you started by asking rhetorical ones you've changed your tune since then (laughs) (laughs) well i don't know they were always non-rhetorical rhetorical questions this one's strictly non-rhetorical so i expect an answer okay did you say trickly or strictly strictly okay because if you're trying to trick me no tricks okay only treats not on today the glorious day of six dash (gasps) nine nice (laughs) Nice. <laughs> That's the number. Um, what would you be willing to give up for freedom? That is the first question today. Just think about it. What are my options? <laughs> what just what are you willing to give up for a little bit of freedom? I I really think that my answer has to strictly depend on the context of the question. Okay. Because if we're talking like I was kidnapped and I'm in someone's basement and he says, I'm going to let you go, but I want something in return. My -hmm. answer is going to be a lot different than, hey, you live in a country that isn't technically, quote unquote, free. What would you give to instead be in a place that was, quote unquote, free? Because those answers are going to be very different. Okay. Let me ask you this. What would you be willing to. Let's say there's something, there's some. Thing out there that you'd be willing to sacrifice freedom to get. So I'm flipping the question on you a little bit. Okay. Oh, okay. So you can take my guns. That's right. You can take my free speech. Yep. You can take my uh, country music. My my right to pay exorbitant amounts of money for healthcare. <laughs> but you can't take my goddamn rights to drink bourbon and to drink ale eight. That's the only things I'm not willing to give them. <laughs> the least yee-yee thing you could say is you can take my guns. <laughs> you can take my guns. <laughs> Said no one ever in America. Uh, but I'd like to kind of frame this in the idea of like how we trade money, how we trade our freedom for money. So that's that's what we call a job, right? We're trading a little bit of our time and <laughs> mental health probably for uh, some money. You know, money pays the bills, it pays for food, it pays for the the roof over our heads. Yeah. The entire idea of existing in a capitalist society that's kind of depressing. Yay, corporate slavery. Woo! (laughs) 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 But it's the entire idea of doing something that I don't want to do in exchange for some money. And you can flip that on its head, too. You can pay somebody to do something that you don't want to do for money. So it's a transferable good type of thing. Yeah. Um. Some would argue that we've kind of been giving up our freedom for security since 9-11. For instance, you can't bring a th- over a three-inch blade onto an airplane for obvious reasons. <laughs> That's not freedom. <laughs> That's that not just, freedom. That just sucks. <laughs> what you're trying to do on an airplane is bad. <laughs> I need this uh, knife for opening cans. <laughs> no, you don't. 
You, <laughs> I cannot imagine somebody going, you are, you are stepping on my rights as an American by not allowing me to bring this straight up hunting knife <laughs> onto this plane. Well, I, so I will say when I was little, I did get in trouble at the airport because I tried to bring on my arts and crafts supplies once, mm-hmm. which included some very long, very sharp scissors. Oh, I was no. very much uh, not allowed to bring those, which I had learned that day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is this before or after 9 11? Because <laughs> this was after, I think. I forget ooh, you guys are older than me sometimes. You're on a list. Probably. <laughs> you would have gotten, gotten away with that beforehand, but uh, just you know, to, nowadays, not so much. Just to give a little context, your boy was four when 9 11 happened. I have no idea. I guess I was seven or eight. Seven, seven or eight. I grew up in a in a world post 9 11. Any memories before 9 11 are non existent to me. It has always been 9 11 for me. Yeah, I I still remember I was in science class when we got pulled out. <laughs> Oof. Yeah, I don't remember where I was when it happened, but I, I was probably in school for. Oh yeah, no, it happened in the middle of the day for yeah, us. Yeah. yeah, crazy. Yeah, that's Anyways, wild. That's nine eleven. We're not talking about nine eleven today. Um, We've been a lot cooler if we were, because we definitely just threw a giant like. <laughs> A giant nail bed down. <laughs> let's, let's just swerve out of the way of that. Well, okay. I don't want to. <laughs> let's get derivative with that idea of giving up something to further drive home a point. Think of the idea of giving up a little something of yours for the greater good of society at large. I would do that. Yeah, you would, right? Yeah. I would too. The astute among you listeners out there would call this altruism or being selfless, which is a pretty cool thing to do. Um, so, for instance, you might wear a mask out in public to prevent the spread of COVID or something like that. You might give your money to charity or donate something of you mine could, that I'm no longer using. You could, you could wear a mask you could, and, be, you could. and be selfless, or you could refuse to wear a mask for no good reason <laughs> and be selfish. That's right. Uh, hot, takes, hot takes on this episode. When he said what we're talking about earlier before the podcast, I knew I was like, okay, this podcast going places. Yep. Okay, bet. <laughs> it's not places you're going to like going, but we're going. So Here's little innocent me who has, he definitely told me what we're talking about. Yeah, I was unfamiliar. I was like, well, I guess we're walking into this one blind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I heard it and I was like, yeah, okay, this is going to be a Nick episode. Yep. Okay. Let's, let's hit it. We're going places. Um, but it can even be something as giving up a little bit of your time to hold open the door for somebody who's maybe walking behind you. So, you know, little something, little things that we can do to make somebody's life a little bit easier. But I'd like to close out this cursory discussion with a rhetorical question that I'd like you to keep in the back of your head from here on out. Would you be willing to trade your freedom for happiness? Consider the growing amount of authoritarian sentiments in the world today. You look at these people that are leading the charge. They promise things like security, happiness, and peace. But when you look a little deeper at how they're going to get to those things, it's downright dystopian. And while we're on the topic of dystopianism, you listeners know that I love dystopian settings and entertainment, let's go ahead and perhaps talk about the godfather of all dystopian novels, Brave New World. And that is what I'd like to talk about on this podcast with you guys today. So, 
Let me start by asking, what do you guys know about Brave New World? And were you ever assigned to read it in high school? Was not assigned to read it in high school. Read it on my own free time and will because my grandpa was like, you need to be educated and you need to read this so you know what's going on in this world. Brave New World or 1984? Because they're close. I read 1984. Both? Most people have read 1984. I read that on my own um, volition back in high school because... You know, cringy libertarian me thought it would be cool to <laughs> read 1984. <laughs> <laughs> Closest I ever got to any of these books for like school reading was like Fahrenheit 451. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Maybe we'll talk about that next when I actually read it. Um, but <laughs> boy. Hey, or you this, could listen to an audio book. Or listen to a podcast about it, which is a derivative work and probably more entertaining than the book itself. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you're doing today, right, guys? Yeah, we're putting some personality this into this. <laughs> You were assigned to read this book and you didn't. And you're listening to a podcast. But that's okay. I got you covered. Uh, please don't sue me if you fail the test. But first, let's know, talk about like, what okay. Brave New World is. Um, as I mentioned before, it's a dystopian social science fiction novel written by an English author the name of Aldous Huxley in 1931. It was published in 1932, a year after. Nice. Mm-hmm. It is set in a futuristic world state where the citizens are environmentally engineered into an intelligence-based social hierarchy. Um, The novel kind of anticipates these huge scientific advancements with uh, reproductive technology, uh, sleep learning, uh, psychological manipulation, um, and classical or Pavlovian conditioning that are combined all in this one kind of thing, this world government that is formed over the years to make a dystopian society. What's what is sorry, what is Pavlovian conditioning? Uh so yeah, let's back up a little bit because that is I feel like uh, that's gonna be an important thing to understand. Yeah. It's I wouldn't say it's a central theme, but it's a way, it's a it's a means to an end, pretty much. So you have a society of people that are conditioned through this Pavlovian or classical conditioning. So what that is, is when you um so there's a great example of this when somebody I forget which show it is. It's a TV show. Somebody rings a bell and then gives the person next to them in the cubicle a piece of gum oh no you're talking about the office that's the office yeah. Uh, yeah yeah so it's like the whole thing where it's anytime that he uh anytime that jim gets an email uh, isn't it gets an email or i think restarts his computer that's it restarts uh, his yeah. computer is the correct answer yeah. he, he, he gives well, he gives dwight a men okay so what are they called so it's mentoid? it's mentoid it's positive stimulation per uh desired uh effect yeah it's basically it's basically training someone or something to learn that due to one side effect, uh, either joy or pain yep. will come from that. And so they uh, start associating the side effect with that feeling. Gotcha. Yeah. It can be negative or positive in, in mm-hmm. a lot of cases. So I ring a bell and I give you gum. I ring a bell and I give you gum. I ring a bell. Now you're expecting gum. So you see how that works? You're yes. Expecting, you're expecting so, gum, so you're excited. So this society is basically controlled by these pavlovian conditionings um, among other things yes and that's driven it to dystopian to, to their to their point of view it's utopian because you know they've yeah. done away with because, a lot of because here's things. here's the hot and spicy is you cannot have a dystopia without it being somebody's utopia yes that's yeah. the real mm-hmm. issue like even in planet of the apes it was a dystopian society but to those apes that was utopia. It was great. That's that's the issue with dystopia is that it's always <laughs> someone's utopia because someone yeah. caused it to be that way. Yeah, you take uh, for instance like Andrew Ryan's Rapture in mm-hmm. the Bioshock series of games. Like that's his utopia. He's having a great time, but 
for everyone else, not, not so, so much. much. Exactly. <laughs> so in summary, uh, this is a book where we're introduced to a society that is fatally flawed, but there are some people that are none the wiser. A lot of the population, they're just none the wiser. They're having a great time. But possibly one of the worst forms of dystopia out there is when people are um, unaware of their surroundings. They're unaware of the dystopian crumble um, that's around them. But let's actually define this, define the word of dystopia. Um, it actually comes from two ancient Greek words that combine literally to mean bad place. But Google defines it as, quote, an imagined state or society in which there are there is great suffering or injustice, typically one that is totalitarian or post-apocalyptic. And this particular story that we're about to talk about, there is definite evidence of a totalitarian state and injustice, but it lacks the suffering with a few notable exceptions among the characters. And I'd say that's very important. So keep keep suffering as a vocab word in the back of your head, because that's going to it's going to help us later on down the road. Oh, buddy, I'm always suffering. Suffering from success. Hey. <laughs> My <not>. fucking boy. <laughs> so with all that said, let's talk a little bit about the author, our boy Aldous Huxley. Yes, and please. I feel it's necessary to talk about um, who wrote the story, because that will better inform you to the key points that he's trying to drive home through writing this. And of course, we have to make a stop in historical context lands of when this was actually written. Um, mm-hmm. but beyond all that, I just think Aldous Huxley is a pretty interesting guy for sure, um, dude, outside of all his publishing. So let's talk a little bit about Aldous. He was born in Surrey, England, uh, in 1894, which is just South of L- London. Um, I had to look it up because I don't know anything about <laughs> English geography. <laughs> Me either, bud. <laughs> uh, he was the third son of a writer and schoolmaster, Leonard Huxley, and his first wife, Julia Arnold, who founded Pryor's Field School. And you might be wondering, what the hell kind of name is Aldous anyway? Uh, well, his mom, Julia, named him after a character in one of her sister's novels. So he comes from this family of well-learned people and, and an extended family of writers and poetry writers and all this. So he grows up kind of poking around his family's estate in his father's botanical laboratory, who no doubt inherited it from Aldous's grandfather, who was a famous biologist by the name of Thomas Henry Huxley, otherwise known as Darwin's Bulldog. He was a guy who was always out there arguing for the points of uh, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution when maybe it was a contentious argument back then. True. Hence his nickname, Darwin's Bulldog. So he's having a pretty good time and he's having a good educational childhood when at the age of 14, tragedy strikes his family when his mother succumbs to cancer in 1908, which kind of results in a cynical outlook uh, on things later in life. But that's not all that happens to our boy Aldous. In 1911, at the age of 17, he contracted uh, this eye disease called keratitis punctuata. Punctuata, I don't know. Basically, it leaves him blind for two to three years, and it's like a reoccurring thing that comes back every so often. Um, So it kind of ends his early dreams of becoming a doctor. But upon his recovery in October of 1913, Aldous... Uh, Mr. Huxley entered Balliol College, Oxford, where he studied English literature. And for those of you who are history-minded out there, we've got our First World War coming up around this time period. So you know what that means, right? We've got to talk about it. We won't really talk about the First <laughs> World War. It's time for a war. War. What is good for? Good for this guy, Huxley. No, it's not. (laughs) Okay, cool. (laughs) Then you better keep talking. So here we go. He volunteered for the British Army in in January of 1916, so the war is already two years underway. Hey, good for him, by the way. Yeah, go go volunteer if that's your thing. Come Um, on, man. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, Britain is really struggling in their second year of this conflict. They're recruiting everyone. They're, they're having these big old drives. But thankfully for us, he was rejected on health grounds, being still half blind in one eye. Nice. So dodge I'm a bullet half there. Deaf, so I feel your pain, Huxley. <laughs> he, uh, so after he gets out of this, um, well, not out of it, but he never really was in it, but he edited Oxford Poetry in 1916, uh, doing his duty, I guess. And in June of that year, graduated with a BA in first class honors with a, with a U because it's, it's British spelling apparently. Okay. Um, but after he graduates, he then goes and teaches French at Eton College. And among one of his pupils is a young Eric Blair, who later adopts the pen name of George Orwell. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Similar guy. Okay. Yeah. Um, of, throughout the of, 20- of 19 or of, uh, 1984, yeah, 1984 right. fame. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just kind of interesting how these people met and probably shook hands with one another and went on to write similar type of books, but maybe kissed on the lips. Who's to so, say? So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ginger kiss on the lips. <laughs> no, <laughs> they probably didn't, but, uh, well, good, the 20s, good thing you clarified that. Yeah. I just, yeah, you got to throw that out there. <laughs> so <laughs> throughout the twenties, he became a moderately successful, um, author publishing four novels in the genre of social satire. So I'm tracking here. I'm, I'm with him. I like satire. And that brings us to the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And we know the world is having this Great Depression during the time. Uh, things are pretty rough. It's among other things, it's known as the interwar period nowadays. Um, but Huxley is living it up in Cenary sur Mir, France, <laughs> 1931. I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, but it's on the southern Mediterranean coast of France, and it looks like a pretty nice place. Um, but we know he's a guy who likes to write satires. That's that's a check on the old uh, Nick is going to read this book box. Mm-hmm. So you know who he decides to satirize next at this time? Who's that? Mr. H.G. Wells. <laughs> <laughs> Big swings <Yeah>. from my boy. <laughs> He's famous for his sci-fi and utopian books. And I'm sure you've heard of War of the Worlds because everyone exactly. has. Uh, but Huxley is primarily interested in writing his next book about two H.G. Wells novels in particular. Uh, one is A Modern Utopia, published in 1905. And my Men Like Gods, published in 1923. But unlike these optimistic utopian novels, Huxley sought to provide a frightening vision of the future, referring to Brave New World as a quote-unquote negative utopia. Mm. Or we just call it a dystopia today. But the events of the Depression in the, in the UK in 1931 persuaded Huxley to assert that stability was one of the, was the primal and ultimate need if civilization was to survive the crisis of the Great Depression. So you see him trying to push for men need stability. They need, um, they need this something stable to latch onto in this time of tumult. Um, and I don't think he was arguing for a fascist dictatorship, dictatorship, but we'll get to that, um, later on. Huxley used the setting and the characters of the science fiction novel to express widely felt, uh, anxieties that were popular in the world today, particularly the fear of use, losing your individual identity in a fast paced world of the future. Yeah. That's a mouthful. So he was ahead back, of his time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's interesting how, you know, there's echoes of, of history throughout modern day, um, living, I guess, but. Hey, what do we like to say on this show is that history, history? doesn't repeat itself. No, it doesn't. It, but rhymes. it often rhymes. Yeah. <laughs> We got to flip back the pages in history to the 1920s, not the 2020s. I have to remind myself that we're living in the future nowadays. But 
Uh, we see that it was called the Roaring Twenties for a reason, right? Because of all this... the lions. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> <laughs> they're running rampant was... all over the yeah. place. <laughs> yeah, <they're... laughs> no, there is a there is mechanization. There is factories. There is assembly lines. There was everything is moving faster and faster and faster. The pace of life was really picking up at this time. And I think the people were moving faster too, quite literally, with the automobile, you know, racing around, living the, living the Great Gatsby lifestyle. But um, you have Drowning things like in radio. pools and such. You mm-hmm. have like radio and film, and it's, it kind of lures the masses of people into this uh, modern age of living that we enjoy today. Is this and when Huxley, War of the Worlds happened? When they uh, put the radio broadcast of War of the Worlds up? I think that was, yeah, it could have been. And it made people go like absolutely wild. <laughs> I think it could have been actually. Um, I'll have to, you have to look that up for me and tell me. Will do. Um, but Huxley saw all this happening in the 20s and he was just like, hmm, you know, I wonder what would happen if we continued on this path. If we hit fast forward and imagine a future as it's played out in the year 2540. So 2540. Um, so what, let's get into it. Well, you want to just go talk about the plot? Because we can do that. Let's talk about the plot. Yeah. Let's, well, get let's, into it. let's first, because we haven't reached that year yet. Like in uh, George Orwell's 1984, we've passed that. Yes. We, and it hasn't happened and, so far. And guess what? We're good. But let's just, the three of us, talk about what we think 2,500 and so is going to be like. Huh? Flying cars. No. <laughs> I'll, say, I'll, say the easy, I'll say the easy one. Jetpacks. Like we all, we all think it, right? Like yeah. jetpacks have got to be around by then. Jetpacks. Here's the real question is. Flying cars. Is humanity around then? Oh, that's a tough one. Yeah, that is <laughs> hard a tough to one. say. Yeah, I if think they some are, of us will. Yeah, I think if they are, we got to have teleportation at that point. At that point, <laughs> teleportation like, freaks me out, and I'll tell you yeah. why. Because the only way that it's scientifically possible, even in the theoretical basis, is complete de-atomization and yep. reassembly of atoms afterwards. And that leads to the question of once you teleport, is it still you? And then we're getting into like the ship of uh what's Theseus. the name? Yes. Where Theseus. it's like yep. if you if you replace all the parts on the boat, is it the same boat? Wild stuff. So teleportation yeah. is scary. <laughs> <laughs> teleportation check. <laughs> uh what else what else we'll be living on mars probably we'll have a colony up there probably on the moon too that's probably gonna happen in the next hundred years if i'm being honest i sure hope so i'm tired of this planet no (laughs) time to move on a little weird but all right (laughs) no i think it'd be cool like take a little vacation on the moon just because you can that'd be pretty cool for sure um yeah, but I don't know. Humanity is probably going to be a multi-planetary species. I don't know if we'll still be living on Earth, and the people that are left on Earth will probably be poor, uh, few and far between, and probably poor. Yeah, <laughs> and probably poor. I <laughs> think inflation today. Am I right? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Wild. Everyone's poor. Um, Let's talk about joke. this brave new world, Nick. Okay. Uh, so it's a book. We all know this. Um, yeah. The novel opens in the world state city of London. In AF six thirty two, okay. So you might be wondering what what's yeah what's AF as as, as fuck? fuck like fuck. what? <laughs> no, no, that's not it's, it. It's after Ford. After Ford automotives. Um, so yes, yes. Hint, hint. Henry Ford is a big deal in the society. So yeah, let's mm. throw that out. Um, 
citizens are engineered through artificial wombs and childhood indoctrination programs into predetermined classes based on their intelligence and labor. So you have... Is it uh, bad that I don't hate that method? Uh, what? <laughs> I don't hate that. It's a good idea, right? Basically, instead of... Uh, instead of moms bearing babies. That's I'm not I'm not so concerned about the whole parental figure thing. Okay. What I'm saying is instead of your fate being determined by the family you're born into, mm-hmm. it is determined strictly by uh, the qualities that you display, your intelligence, how hard you work. That determines your class. So that's that's not what happens here. <laughs> you just said that it was predetermined classes based yes, on intelligence and labor. But it's based on your uh they they do all these things to you within the actual embryonic stage. They uh, make you spark yeah. smarter. Yeah, yeah. They make yeah. you smarter it, and or dumber. And yeah, uh, so they, they decide Okay, yeah. so they make they, you whatever yeah, class they yeah. want. Yeah. Shit. It, it'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. That sucks. It sucks, but I mean, look at what they're uh, preventing, I guess, or um, eschewing in this particular world. Is that we can talk about idiocracy I mean, in a little bit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, as as someone on the tail end of their twenties, like the thought of not having to spend the last twenty years of my life not ha- like thinking about like what I'm going to do with the rest of it. Yeah, where's this whole? Where's nice. this bus going that I'm riding on? <laughs> <laughs> Where are we heading? So basically, you have the the four or five ma- major classes. There's the alphas, right? Alphas uh, are like. Pretty good. <laughs> to be fair, this is this was at a time when like the whole alpha ideology was something that was like kind of based in science. Fine. Like, uh, well, it was not based in science, it was based off of observations by one dude who didn't know what he was talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is before, you know, Nazi Germany and all that. But uh yeah. we're we're just talking about this particular caste system in here. So this is a book, it's all fictional, but you have the alphas who are, you know, genetic genetically engineered to be the best and brightest. Fine. And then you have uh, betas, which are a step below that. Sucks, but um, whatever. Yeah, below that, uh, go through the Greek alphabet here. There's gamma. Gamma. Um, delta. Deltas are kind of like the second to lowest. They're doing like manual menial tasks. But they are and... the best pilots. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I think some of them are pilots. That's funny. Um, <laughs> but they've been, uh, they've been tampered with in the womb, the artificial womb that they've been created in. Gotcha. So they're... They're below average intelligence. And then later on after they're, uh, I guess, born, um, they're conditioned to not like certain things and like certain things. So, you know, it's it's this process that they use. It's an assembly line of people. That's how it's referred to. Um, hmm. So the book starts with the uh, director of the Central London Hatching and Conditioning Centers. He's uh, He's walking around here. He's showing a group of alphas around the hatcheries. And this serves as kind of your introduction to the world uh, that Aldous Huxley has made for you. Okay. The book describes these vials of embryos being rolled along a conveyor belt at a very precise speed. Um, and you have you have this idea that, you know, women don't have to carry babies anymore. And it's great. That's um, dope. That's great. You know, less human suffering. We're all for it. Um, but they're rolling off these things that, uh, like assembly lines, like Model T's perhaps, uh, mm. He proclaims that they're quite proud of how they can produce 96 identical copies of just one fertilized egg. The director also shows how they condition babies to like and dislike certain things via our old friend Pavlovian conditioning. There it is. Yep. 
So it's it's classical conditioning. It works really well with lab rats and dogs and stuff like that. But in this case, it works with babies too. Uh, the director shows the group and you, the reader, ergo, uh, this room in which Delta babies are being conditioned to hate books and flowers uh, via a small electric shock administered through the floors. So they're introduced to these books, these flowers, and then dzz, they get zapped. Like, ooh, and they start crying, and it's very bad. Uh, these are Delta babies. So what you can start to think of is that um, they're pretty innocuous things, right? There's books and flowers. Well, what could they mean? But because the books represent knowledge and the flowers represent nature, meaning these, these babies will be dumb and they will hate going outside. They, they want to avoid all knowledge. They want to avoid all books. And they don't like nature and they don't like flowers because every time they saw the flower as a baby, they got zapped. So they're conditioned to stay inside, work at their jobs, and perform menial tasks in factories. That's what deltas do. They work. Sucks. It sucks, but somebody's got to sweep the floors in after after all that. Can I be like the f- the first in this podcast episode to say "fuck you, Henry Ford"? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if Henry Ford's an interesting character. What's <laughs> not? Yeah, <laughs> he invented the assembly line. <laughs> did good things. Did bad things. <laughs> Just like everyone else in history, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to weigh those things on a scale, I suppose, but to see whether you like him or not, but. I read his biography because he's an interesting character. Um, after this, we are introduced to Mustafa Mond, who is one of 10 world controllers. So there's uh, only 10 people controlling the entire world at this point. It's kind of insane. But anyways, he's the big people. cheese. He's the big cheese around these parts, okay? Yep. And he's going to tell the group how things were before all this, before our assembly lines, before our artificial wounds. Uh, he's the giver. The giver? What's that? He gives information. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So he, have you never read The Giver? No. Oh, okay. It's similar. It's very similar. Michael, okay. go ahead and jot down on a little post-it that your next episode is going to be on The Giver. <laughs> all right. Fine. <laughs> Anyways, he's given all these these uh, these aspiring young alphas, or I guess they are alphas at this point, but um, he's given them this information to kind of scare them into what life was like before. Um he says uh, these mothers, they bared children and they were raised in families and all the adults were monogamous. And it really scares the group because they don't do any of that in this society. God forbid. God forbid. <laughs> they're, they're shocked and appalled that women bore babies and had them naturally. It's, it's oh, it's risque. What? They had them out of their bodies like <laughs> apes. <laughs> Ridiculous. Get this ideology out of my fucking face. <laughs> That's what the it's, alphas sound like, by the way. Yes, yes. Um, but it's completely unimaginable to them. It's incredibly taboo to not be sexually promiscuous in this society. So we then hmm. go to... Um, that's Hold on. That's actually wild. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a little crazy. They're like, well, For, we've got to do all especially this. Especially, when was this written? Uh, 1931. Yeah, like for the time, especially. Especially for the time. Yeah. If this were written in the 70s, I'd be like, okay, free love. I get it. Or Mm -hmm. 60s even. But that's a little wild. Yeah. I don't know where he's getting all these ideas. It's kind of of an interesting thing to put in a book. Well, Well, I guess like the entire basis is like flood the world with good, flood the people of the world with good feelings so they don't question anything. Yes. That is a key thing. Here's the yeah. hot and spicy too: is that our our boy Henry was writing a dystopian fiction. So what did he consider to be dystopian is just a bunch of people 
doing it with whoever and whenever they want. He's like, that sucks. <laughs> Aldous, Aldous wrote the book, not Henry Ford, but yeah. Oh, yes, sorry. Aldous. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's like, he's kind of pushing for monogamy, I guess, in yeah. an interesting way. Um, which, you know, discuss it with your partner and you'll decide on your own. It's up to you. It's up to you who you, who you do the things with and who you don't. But um, we then turn our attention to Lenina Crown, who is a hatchery worker. Okay. Who's very popular and she's sexually desirable. That's that's said in the book. They, they say she's new Straight up, that is what they say. <laughs> yes, probably. In- <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's very uh, good looking. She's uh, we'll leave sure. that. Well, let me tell you, here are two things I know about Leanna Crown. <laughs> I know two, I know exactly two things. Oh, well, sorry. I know three things. First off, obvious, she's a hatchery worker. Mm-hmm. Number two, mm. and this is important, she is popular. People like her. Here's the third thing, and I would argue the most important. She is sexually desirable. <laughs> <laughs> sexually desirable those are the three things i know about this woman and i will make her my wife <laughs> wife what what <laughs> um but yeah she's she's working in the hatchery she's another alpha of course mm-hmm. and we're introduced to our protagonist of the of the story his name is uh bernard marx um he's a psychologist and fellow you know alpha plus model i guess of human and can i take a not- guess here He's not so popular. Yeah, go ahead. My boy's butt ugly. <laughs> He's, yes, yes. <laughs> He's an outcast in the society because everyone else, all the alphas are, you know, they're they're pretty close to perfect. Um, Can you imagine being a psychologist in this world? Because, like, that's not something that you studied or were assigned to. You just decided. You're just like, I'm going to be a psychologist. Because there's no way this, assigned, society, yeah. this society was like, we need psychologists. I don't know. They kind of do, though, in order to, like, come up with the plans to, like, basically indoctrinate kids. Like, you got to have someone who knows how the brain works in order to do that. That's actually what he does. He's in charge of, uh, it's called sleep learning. It's hypnopedia or something. But basically what it is is he programs all the the voices that are behind people's heads when they're sleeping as they're being raised. And they're like, uh, I don't know, they say various phrases throughout it, but it repeats on a loop. They say, oh, 27,000 times a week. Uh, this is what it will replay every night for the next uh, decade or so. But I don't know. It's it's a weird thing. I don't know if sleep learning is actually a thing. Um, I guess so he thought it was. He controls like sleep learning. Yes, hypnopedia. Do you ever just think he snuck in like a demon voice every once in a while just to fuck with <laughs> I someone? I would have. <laughs> Sometimes he's just like nightmare, nightmare, nightmare. <laughs> they don't have any family. They were made in a lab. <laughs> Test two babies, yeah. <laughs> you have no Brenda, no one loves you. <laughs> Anyway, uh, Bernard Marx, he's, he's an outcast in society because, uh, he's got, um, he's got Napoleon complex. For lack of a better he's word. widow. <laughs> he's shorter in stature than okay. the average, which, you know, kind of gives him a complex, but, uh, his work with sleep learning allows him to understand and disapprove of society's methods of keeping its citizens peaceful, which includes their constant consumption of a smooth, soothing, happiness producing drug called Soma. Soma. So everyone's doing soma. Um, I, I've heard it compared to both an antidepressant and an anti-anxiety pill, if you want to call it that, but with no none of the kind of negative uh, 
side effects because Aldous saw that, um, you know, people are going to start experimenting with drugs and uh, eventually they'll get better and they'll have no side effects. Um, unfortunately, that's not the case now, but, uh, you know, we get a little closer every day. Anyways, everyone's doing Soma and they say uh, a gram is better than a, a dam. <laughs> it's like one of those little phrases that they repeat over and over again. So they're taking it like every day. Well, that's they're pretty fun. much addicted. Yeah, it's, um, it's real fun. Um, but Bernard is is vocal and arrogant about his criticisms. He's always like, I don't really like this society and he's saying mean things and those are actually words from the book people no, you can, you can look it up <laughs> he's pretty open about it he's like oh I hate this everyone's brainwashed and I hate it because he knows he's literally writing the code to play the voices but um, he has a boss of course and the boss openly <laughs> contemplates exiling him to Iceland because of his nonconformity what's up with Iceland is it just where people get sent yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> you don't fit into our little grid go to iceland <laughs> so our boy's all alone and for the most part yeah he does have a. Uh, well we'll get to that later um and the thing you want to know at this point is that he's attracted to lenina crown yeah of course we've because, got listen she is both a hatchery worker popular <laughs> and sexually desirable <laughs> There's no reason She's not at all. There is she is the whole package. There is no reason not to want her. That's the thing. Like everyone, there's there's another like phrase that's repeated over and over again. It's and it's I'm gonna get that Lenona crown. That's the phrase uttered by everyone out of the hatchery. No. By this time everyone's probably, you know, done the deed with her at this point because everyone belongs to everyone else, and you can just you can sleep freely with everyone else. Um, cool. That's that's just what they say, okay? I'm not for or against it, but... Um, Speak your mind, bud. Where, where do you stand? <laughs> what are you trying to say here? What I'm trying to say is that monogamy is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> you're engaged now, so you're contractually obligated. Contractually, yeah. yes. Um, okay, so <laughs> he's attracted to Lenina. We know this. Uh, but he's kind of bothered by the fact that she acts just like everyone else. Because everyone acts like everyone else except yeah. for him. <laughs> yeah, like, what a fucking asshole. Uh, but regardless, uh, he's planning to take a night out in the town with her, you know what I'm saying? So he's like, hey, how about we take a little, uh, they call it a holiday because they're from England, right? Um, but it's a vacation, basically. They're they're planning on going to a, a trip to a savage reservation in New Mexico um, the next evening. So tomorrow evening. Where does this story take place? Because London. it's not Iceland and it's not New, New Mexico. It's London. Okay. It takes place in New London. Oh, they New plan London. on I'm sorry. They plan on going to America to New Mexico. Yeah. Yep. Okay. They have take like a holiday planes or something. I don't know. They're going to take a holiday outside the world state. Yes. To a savage reservation in New Mexico. Yes. Okay. Because uh, that's what Bernard wants to do, and he's taking Lenina on a little date. And he does what he wants, including he wants. Lenina. Nice. <laughs> so he hopes. Happy 6-9, um, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Love is in the air. <laughs> um, but savages... I just remembered there was a video game that was released a few years ago that is like built entirely off of the same concept. Mm -hmm. Hate that. Of Brave New World. It's called We Happy Few. Oh, ah, yes. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I'm going to have to go play that That would now. be a great follow-up for this episode. Yeah, I'm going to make <laughs> Write that one that. down on that post-it note you have, Mike. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's got yeah. two episodes coming down the pipeline now. <laughs> anyway. Progress. That's really cool. Yeah, I'm going to have to look at that up. Um, okay, so they're so in New Mexico. Yes. Uh, the savages, of course, in this particular name. Uh, okay. They are a reference to people that are outside of this global government society that everyone else lives in. Um, there's kind of reference to, say, uh, the native peoples of America, maybe, Ooh. just a little bit. Hate um, that. But Bernard's one of one of his only friends, <laughs> one of his only close friends that he can really confide in, is a guy named uh, Hemholtz Watson. Sure. And he's a gifted writer who finds it difficult to use his talents creatively in their pain-free society. So yeah. he feels there's, you know, he wants to express himself, but he's just not sure how to do it. <laughs> Without the ability to cause discomfort in society, art is a challenging thing to make, exactly. I would say. Yeah. Um, he wants to express this thing inside of him, but he's, he's just not sure how to do it. Because if he does it, then maybe his script for whatever he's writing doesn't uh, doesn't go through. Maybe they I mean, don't approve it. God forbid it offends someone and he end up in Iceland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Bernard and Hemholtz, they kind of bond uh, in this kind of social outcast, brooding teenage way. Um but they think they're also smart, you know, <laughs> in typical cringy high school ways. Because um, doesn't every man just think he's the smartest fucking person on the planet? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> uh, Everyone with a main character syndrome, at least. Yes. Bernard mm-hmm. is one of these main characters because he is, obviously. Because he obviously is. Yeah, I mean, come on. <laughs> um but that night, Bernard goes to something called a solidarity service, which is pretty much like church for the society. Um, they all partake in soma, so they're taking drugs, which allows them to feel More as if churches they're... should be like this, <laughs> giving out drugs. <laughs> Maybe it actually go. Who knows? Um, but they, they take this to make them feel as if they're devo- dissolving into one being. So um, slightly hallucinogenic properties there too. But they sing a song that begins with uh, orgy porgy. Ford and fun. Cool first word. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Um, and all while praising Henry Ford. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weird kind of way. That's a little wild because from a religious standpoint, most religions can be tracked back to a singular idea, mm-hmm. which is there is a deity of some sort. We are attempting to get back to them. We are not of one, but many mm-hmm. who are attempting to reunite as one being. So it's interesting that even in this story, like in this church, when they're doing drugs, the purpose of the drugs is to make them one. Like that's Mm -hmm. super realistic to most religions, even though this one's based on Henry Ford, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they all say, oh, my Ford instead of oh, my Lord or something. Hate that. I do hate that. Um, (laughs) But anyways, uh, then they proceed after they've taken their drugs to um, have an orgy and they proclaim that he is coming. Henry Ford? Or them. <laughs> At this point. Everyone. Everyone's coming. Um, but they kind of have this idea. C-O-M-I-N-G. Yes. Thank you, censors. Stay away Keep from me. <laughs> um, but they, they kind of think that Henry Ford is going to have a second coming like Jesus. You know, he's going to come back from the dead. He's going to come back. Okay. Um, but it makes Bernard and, and me, the reader, <laughs> very uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> but of course he takes so many, it all just kind of, all just kind of melts away and he goes through the routine and his discomfort goes away. Uh, but this could be maybe construed as a, a little metaphor for say Karl Marx saying religion is the opiate of the masses, but 
if we look at more of the illustration of religion being a method of control for populations, it makes just a bit more sense. Um, we then cut to Bernard, who has by this time uh, established as a story protagonist, trying to get permission from uh, trying to get permission from the director for his trip to New Mexico. The director is, of course, upset. He's like, "Why do you want to go see the savages? They're they're you know they're down here, we're up here, etc. and so forth." But he tries to scare Bernard by telling his uh, telling his experience of his own trip there. He says it was horrible. Uh, he said him and a woman rode horses and camped in the wild, but the woman was kidnapped. And while out searching for the woman, he hurts his knee and is he, he's in terrible pain. And he ends the story by once again threatening to send Bernard to Iceland because that's what he does. Cool, um, cool catchphrase, man. <laughs> Go to Iceland. <laughs> I want to remind our listeners that Iceland's actually pretty cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Iceland is not the one covered in ice. That's Greenland. True. Iceland is covered in green foliage and, and beautiful, uh, almost uh, agricultural farmlands. So Iceland's not that bad. No, it's a cool place to go. Go there it's a cool place. Can. Go visit. And Dublin. <laughs> they have good beer. Get, get exiled to Iceland if you can, if you, at, your, at your job. <laughs> this has been a service announcement from the Entertain This podcast. And the government of Iceland, apparently. Um, but <laughs> begrudgingly, uh, the director approves his request, but he's like, don't you don't you be individualist when you're there. Um, <laughs> you better act like us when you're representing us in yeah. New Mexico. <laughs> Uh, but that sets up Bernard and Lenina's holiday to the reservation. So they hop on a rocket ship or helicopter or whatever they have, and they go over to New Mexico. Cool. So nothing specific. No, just it's whatever. <laughs> it's probably a big old rocket ship. They end ship. up in New Mexico. Don't That's worry about it. Yeah, the trip is is nothing because apparently in the future we've discovered rocket ships that can travel there in five hours or teleportation. Either or, <laughs> maybe both. Um, but here at the reservation, they observe some natural born people. Uh, which is a shock to them. They observe disease. They observe the aging process, other languages, religious lifestyles, all the stuff that, you know, we hear in the normal world, the brave old world, uh, are pretty much used to. Everybody ages, you know, everybody follows different religions. They all speak different languages. It's just part of our world. So um, the culture of these village folk resembles, resembles the um, contemporary Native American groups of the region, including the descendants of the Ant- Anasazi, including the Puebloan peoples of the Hopi and Zuni. Um, so these are all tribes that live in the current state of New Mexico. Um, Bernard and Lenina then witness a violent public ritual in which somebody is whipped and is expected to stay silent during the duration of the whipping while others watch. Uh, so that's a big shock to them because they're like, why are, you, why are you putting yourself in so much pain? We don't understand. Couldn't be me. Couldn't be. Um, it's also known as self-flagellation. Yes, not to be confused with the other thing that begins with an F. Um, What's that? Self-fellatio, is that the... Oh, uh, yeah. I see what you're getting at now. Don't look it up. Um, (laughs) You you have to have a special operation to remove your bottom ribs, as we all know. As every teenage boy knows. (laughs) As every teenage boy has heard rumor of in Mm -hmm. every high school locker room across America. (laughs) Dude, you can just suck yourself. (laughs) Dude, no, come on. We're not getting into details. Make them Google it. (laughs) But anyways, um, while they're on this reservation, they encounter Linda, who is a woman. Linda. Linda. (laughs) Who's originally from this world state, who's living on the reservation with her son, John, who is now a young man. 
And that's a big shocker because nobody escapes the world state living, you know, uh, nobody wants to escape the world state. Why would you even leave? Um, cause it's carefree life of luxury. Why would you ever want to leave? But she too visited the reservation on holiday many years ago, became, became separated from her group who was left behind. She had meanwhile become pregnant by a fellow holiday ma- maker who's oh. revealed to be Bernard's boss, the director oh. of hatcheries and mm. conditioning. So she's the lady from the horse story. Yeah. So she did not try to return to the world state because of her shame at her pregnancy. Women aren't supposed to get pregnant in this society. How do you avoid that? Uh, They take birth control, basically. Bet. Continue. So that's cool. Um, But she didn't try to (laughs) So that's a cool development from this uh, (laughs) dystopian story, (laughs) is that birth control is free and taken by everyone. Yes. And sex is not meant to be had for reproductive purposes or procreative purposes. It's for pleasure, baby. Strictly for pleasure. Um, but despite spending her, his, um, she doesn't, because she's ashamed of this pregnancy, she's like, I'm not returning. That's It's shameful. I'll be a taboo outcast. Um, she spends, despite spending his whole life on the reservation, John has been, never been accepted by the villagers and his and Linda's lives are hard and they are unpleasant in comparison to the world state. Um, but Linda has taught John to read from the only book in her possession at the time, a scientific manual and another book that John found the complete works of Shakespeare. Oh, Ben. So, uh, both of them are kind of ostracized by the villagers. John is able to articulate his feelings only in terms of Shakespearean drama, which is not a bad way to express yourself. No. Um, so he just sounded like the most pretentious prick ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kinda, I don't know. I heard a, I heard a rendition of the uh, to be or not to be uh, soliloquy from Hamlet mm-hmm. performed in like just basic understanding of communication where this guy lays it out exactly like how it's meant to be read, which is a, an ongoing monologue in someone's head. And it is one of the most beautifully performed monologues I've ever seen. If he's doing it like that, then John's got an A plus from me. Yes. Yeah. Um, maybe he is. Who knows? You can't. <laughs> I'm just picturing like, hey, 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 what's got you? What's got you down today? Like, doth not look upon yonder window. Don't protest too much. Like, why, why you bummed out, John? <laughs> to be or not to be, that's the question. <laughs> Everyone else is like, shut up. <laughs> like, oh, here he goes again. He's going to talk about dying again. Son of We're a We're going to be bitch. here for 15 minutes waiting for him to finish. Here's the hot and spicy, though. Hamlet didn't have a dad. John didn't have a dad. Oof. Like... I get He's it. vibing. He's vibing. He's vibing. <laughs> Shakespeare probably didn't have a dad, but you can go ahead. Uh, but anyways, so the the Bernard and Lenina, they find Linda. And Linda now, now that she sees people that are from the world state, she's like, I want to return to London because I miss taking Soma. Wild. <laughs> and John, too, wants to see this brave new world. Quote, unquote. You see, this is where the book gets its name from. Can I read you some Shakespeare real quick? Can I just do that? From what? Uh, hold on. Hold on. Because this is uh, this is from Miranda's speech in William Shakespeare's The Tempest, Act 5, Scene 1. Oh, wonder, how many goodly creatures are there here? How beauteous mankind is, oh, brave new world, that has such people in it. So, ringing any bells here? That's the title of the book. So, Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's <laughs> use of this phrase is, in, is intended ironically. What play um, is that from? The Tempest. Tempest. Attaboy. 
Yep. So it's right there in the in the notes here. So I didn't know that right off the top of my head. You know, you, you don't have to admit to that. You can just pretend you knew. Oh yeah, I knew that right up. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, Let's keep going. But as an interesting fun fact and a entertain this throwback for you dedicated listeners out there, the French edition of this book is entitled and translated Les Milieux des Mondes, the best wow. of all worlds. <laughs> Say that again, sorry. Les Milieux des Mondes. What's it translate to? The best of all worlds. Nice. Which is you an say that very well. I, d- I don't actually know French, but it's an uh, okay. allusion to the expression used by a philosopher, Godfrey Leibniz, which was heavily satirized by a book called Candide by oh! Voltaire. Oh, yeah. Oh, look at our yeah. <laughs> Nice. Nice, Nick. Yes. Throw back to your other episode. That Big was bet. completely not done on purpose. But Yeah, uh, sure it wasn't. That's fine. Get those views up. <laughs> Bernard sees this opportunity to thwart the plans to exile him because he's like, I don't want to go to Iceland. I don't want to go. Uh, but he gets permission to take Linda and John back to the Brave New World. And uh, he meets the director. John meets the director and he says, oh, you're my father. Uh-oh, that's Shit, a vulgarity, which causes a roar of laughter and the humiliated director resigns in shame. This is wild. So he can, <laughs> So therefore, he can't follow through with exiling Bernard. So you think, all right, cool. That's the end of the book, right? Happy ending? Wrong. Bernard is now the custodian of the savage, otherwise known as John, and he's treated as a celebrity because he takes him around to parties and shows off this savage lifestyle that they're enjoying. Um, meanwhile, Lin- Linda goes to just take Soma until she dies, um, which is kind of a sad thing. But that's uh, a uh, that's actually a throwback to Othello. Yeah. In which, um, no, sorry, Hamlet. The reason I got confused was because uh, it's Ophelia. Othello, mm. Ophelia, you can kind of see the confusion. Gotcha. Ophelia, uh, after the death of her father, goes completely mad. Some argue that poppies were involved, uh, which, of mm. course, is a drug. Um, opium. When yeah. Opium, correct. Thank you. Um, she goes completely mad after the death of her father and is basically written out of the story to say she went off, got high, and died. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it's a tragedy. It is. Uh, but anyways, here's here's the here's the cool thing here. Lenina and John are physically attracted to each other. Uh oh, yeah, yeah, let's go, John. John doesn't get the girl, of course. Um, oh, yeah, because he has these kind of traditional Western views of because he's a short king, baby. No, uh, he's he has these views on you know uh, what what a matrimonious relationship should be. You know, um, and he's kind of. He's just like, ew, Lenina does all that. He's freewheeling attitude towards sex. Like, what the hell? Promiscuous? Hashtag no free love. No, no, he's against that because he was raised in this kind of society that's against all that. So um, she tries to seduce him rather forcefully and uh, John ends up attacking her. And then she's she's forced out. He's like, get the hell out of here. Get out. Go to Iceland. Yeah, <laughs> that's what he says. <laughs> does he really? No, I'm kidding. Okay. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, Meanwhile, after all this happens, there's more misfortune that happens to John because his mother, Linda, is uh, pretty much almost dead. Um, He rushes to Linda's bedside, causing a scandal because this is not the correct attitude towards death. And uh, there's some children who enter the ward, they're they're Delta children, who are, um, they're they're learning their death conditioning. They learn that people go to this place, they take a lot of soma, and they die. Um, Hell of a way to go. But John gets angry. He's like, get out of here. This is my mother. And, you know, and he physically assaults one of them and he then tries to break up the distribution of Soma to a lower caste group. He's like, you guys are on drugs. You're being enslaved. And he's trying to tell him all this. Uh, but then just right before he does that, Hemholtz and Bernard rush 
to stop this ensuing riot. And the police kind of take them into captivity by um, spraying some soma vapor into the crowd. So it kind of disperses them and they're all high now. Anyways, <laughs> that's quite a lot. So um, these three are brought before the resident world controller, Mustafa Mond, once again. The three being Bernard. Bernard Hemholtz and John. Yep. Okay. Um, and here you get this kind of, uh, I guess, exposition because Mustafa Mond is like, look at all these things we're doing for these people. Look look at how great the society is that we've made. Cool. Um, and uh, Mond kind of outlines for John the events that led to the present society and his arguments for the caste system and for social control. But John rejects all of Mon's arguments, quoting some Shakespeare in there, as he does. But, um, and he's like, you know what? I accept the right to be unhappy. I accept the right to be unhappy. He says that, and it's this, it's this moment in the book where you're like, this guy's going to be unhappy by choice? What? I think he, he demands the right to be unhappy. He demands the right to be ha- happy. <laughs> um, so John asks if he may go to the Falkland Islands as well with Bernard and Hemholtz, but... Mond refuses, saying he wishes to see what happens to John next. He's like, I'm, Shit. I'll be watching you. No, um, you stay. You, <laughs> you've been a little weird, and I like that. And I'm, I'm way into whatever you're putting out right now. <laughs> yeah. Basically, he's used as a source of entertainment because he takes up, uh, takes up residence in this little lighthouse, and people whiz by on their helicopters. They're like, "What? What's the savage doing today? Huh? What's the savage doing?" Um, and they're just amazed by him because he's whipping himself. All throughout the all throughout his days, because he's 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 just he's unhappy with his current state of life, but he he likes to be unhappy apparently, and he's trying to I guess uh, what's the word I'm looking for atone for his sins in some way, because um, he he thinks he's lived in a life of uh, of sin. He wants to purify himself from all civilization. Um, so <laughs> this is an interesting line here. The the wild behavior of the savage um, transformed the crowds that are ripping by and viewing him into a soma-fueled orgy. So um, just a nice little thing, I guess. But okay. uh, he's just he's just consumed by remorse and um, he's like, oh, why did I, why do I keep whipping myself? But um, he kind of, he, he, go, he doesn't, he commits suicide, of course. And um because he's just he's he's so torn up and um that's kind of how the book ends with with him hanging himself so it's uh it's quite an unhappy ending but somehow a i guess bright ending um anyways let's just get to the conclusion bit because <laughs> i don't want to dwell on that too much but um, a, f- a fair read of the room nick yes yeah. yes <laughs> <laughs> um but that's brave new world that's and then the- he and then he commits suicide you know what you know no, let's, let's, just, let's just go to the end <laughs> that's not fun that's not fun at all nobody should do that but uh um so so it seems like a lot of this can be summed up by there's a quote that I really like from uh, a character that I absolutely love. It's, it goes, I'm sad, but at the same time, I'm really happy that something can make me feel that sad. Yeah. Like it makes me feel alive, you know, makes me feel human. And the only way I can feel this sad now is if I felt something really good before it. Bingo. Here's the hot, favorite here's characters. the hot spicy is that let's just put this down to bare bones um, with the um, worship of Henry Ford in the assembly line. The assembly line has a very simple purpose, which is to dehumanize the worker. They are thought of no more as mechanic devices upon the assembly of cogs a product. Cogs in the machine, man. Mm-hmm. Precisely cogs in the machine. The, the important part of the line that you just mentioned, Michael, was to be human or humanistic. Mm-hmm. 
um, what makes someone human is their emotions. And that's the thing that is trying to be yeah. sort of trained out of people in this society. Thus, the feeling of emotion is what leads to innermost success. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think it's one of the most like poignant points that can be made about like life. And I think like it couldn't have come from a better person in uh, Leopold Butterstotch in from South Park. <laughs> South Park has uh, moments of wisdom in it that are just yeah. You got no idea, you man. Wouldn't expect. You really wouldn't expect. <laughs> I'm rewatching it right now and plans to do an episode in the future on South Park. <laughs> so good. It's very um, good. So that's Brave New World. Um, it's kind of a, a sad story, but also a good story. So you should go read it. Mm -hmm. um, it's a dystopian novel in which the protagonist is actually the antagonist of the people in the society. But uh, the title itself is even very sat satirical in nature because the new world depicted in this book isn't brave at all. In fact, it's the exact opposite, what some would call cowardly. But in retrospect, living in a place like this wouldn't be so bad for the average person, really. Um, they'd be so drugged up and brainwashed that they might actually be truly happy. But the core messages at the end of this book is one of, I'd say, inspiration. Yeah, life is going to suck from time to time, and you're going to be in some sort of pain and discomfort on a semi-normal basis, but those tough times are what makes life worth living. You got to have a little darkness in your life to make the lighter times all the better. Now, I'm not saying you should whip yourself every time you make a mistake, but instead, maybe reflect on why you made the mistake and grow as a human being. That's what life is all about. <laughs> and to summarize this beautifully, I'd like to end with a quote by Bob Ross, as he said, as he was painting a mountain of some sort. But he said, uh, you got to have opposites, light and dark, dark and light and painting. It's like life. Got to have a little sadness once in a while so you know when the good, good times are coming. And so I hope you had a good time listening to this episode. So thanks for entertaining this. And uh, hopefully you go do your summer reading assignment now. <laughs> Read Brave New World. God bless. When we get back, I've got a quick this for you. What'd you say? Sorry? Ford bless. Ford bless. May the Ford bless you. <laughs> may, may, Her may Henry Ford bless you in all of your goings on. Capital T. When we get back, I have a quick this for us. Be right back. And we're back. Your boy is two Kentucky kisses in. <laughs> Oh boy, he's What's up with that face? Boy. I don't know. <laughs> okay. But I want to talk about a world. I want to talk about a world. Can I talk about a world? You talked about a brave new world. Yep. I'd like to talk about a world. Go Somebody ahead. pull up a timer. Because I gotta got to quick you. this that's going to knock you off your feet. I hope and it's about world so ready. war. Go. <laughs> I also want to talk about a world. What world? Is it one separate from our own reality? Actually, no. I want to talk about our world. More importantly, I want to talk about a boy who meets our world, or a little TV show from the 90s called Boy Meets World. Okay. So what is Boy Meets World? Well, that's an excellent question. Let's start by where it started, which was back uh, on September 24th, 1993. Boy Meets World aired on ABC, as some of you may know, uh, is a channel owned by Disney, actually. This is uh, ABC was kind of the direction of their more adult content um, or family oriented content, I should say stuff that was aimed towards both kids and adults. Now, what was Boy Meets World? I would answer that by saying any health class you've ever been in 
Boy Meets World is a great example of how to take those lessons and put them into practice. Mm. Um, the basic premise of Boy Meets World was this. There's a boy named Corey Matthews. Corey Matthews is your average sixth grader in our first season of Boy Meets World. And he is facing the world, uh, the brave new world and all of the lessons that's to come with it, um, including what it means to fall in love, what it means to go through puberty, what it means to be a good friend, uh, and even what it means to be a good person. These are all lessons that our boy, Corey Matthews, must face as he goes against this brave new world, though he is not alone. He is accompanied by his friend Sean Hunter. Uh, and a teacher known as Mr. Feeney, who is also his next-door neighbor. Hmm. The idea of Boy Meets World originally was just the idea of how do we educate teenage boys on the world without it being too obvious. Because if you step a little into Uncanny, you start to seem like a high school video on puberty, and nobody <laughs> likes that. What Boy Meets World was was a humanistic approach to the idea of sexual education. Um when it came to how your body's changing, we watched Corey Matthews deal with problems that we dealt with on a daily basis. He wasn't attracted to girls in one episode. Um, not so that he was attracted to boys, but more or less his friends around him were asking girls out on dates, but he still thought girls were quote unquote icky. Um, so we go through Corey's pressure to ask a girl out, even though he doesn't like her so that he can keep up with his friends. Um, Things like that. And as we move on, we follow Corey all the way through high school and eventually to college as we watch him fall in love with a classmate named Topanga Lawrence and the number of things that go into being a in a relationship. Um, so Corey Matthews is what we all were at that age, a confused boy entering a world that he did not know much about, starting in sixth grade and not ending until they graduate college and start a family. Um, this is really the story of Corey, Topanga, and Sean as they deal with some difficult things in life, much like many 90s live-action TV shows. Um, the characters in this show dealt with serious topics like at one point sean's father abandons him he his mom as a what seems like a joke in the moment drives off in their mobile home he says that's the problem with a home that's mobile is that it can go places and then his dad goes to hunt down their mom leaving sean basically alone sean is then uh taken care of by one of their teachers who eventually becomes sean's guardian um but all the while, Sean is dealing with the trauma that comes with feeling unwanted by your parents. Uh, Corey, though in a stable home, has an older brother who is constantly causing problems for him and giving him bad advice. His name is Eric. Um, and he has to deal with trying to suss his way through the world, even though he's getting this bad advice. And at the same time, he's dealing with the same problems his best friend is dealing with. Uh, Topanga is taking kind of the female role in growing up, being the one dealing with all of the things going on in puberty for girls, showing a great example of that. They, you know, fall in love, Topanga and Corey, uh, and we see their relationship blossom. And what's really cool is... Though Topanga wasn't a main focus in Boy Meets World, which was mostly targeted towards teenage boys and uh, getting them through the many different reactions to puberty, there was a follow-up or a sequel series called Girl Meets World that discussed more interestingly uh, the problems that women experience while going through puberty. 
with a pretty similar setup, including a female best friend akin to Sean Hunter. Um, so you should go check that out. It's on Disney+. Plus. Even if you're grown, I think there's things about the human experience we can learn from Boy Meets World. So you should go and watch it. And that's my five minutes. Boom. Very nice. Did you guys ever see, did you guys ever watch Boy Meets World? Nope. No, I didn't. It's on Disney Plus. If you haven't watched it, it's like part nostalgia trip for me, but also just so well written. Like these characters really get put through the ringer when it comes to development and the lessons that they learn. I have not seen writing like this since this show. It is something that if you have free time, you should go and watch. There are eight seasons of Boy Meets World. I don't know how many seasons of Girl Meets World there is, but you should go and check it out. <laughs> Sweet. Very nice. I think that's, that's all we got this week, boys. Uh, I have a Kentucky Kiss to finish, and I'm afraid by the time this glass is empty, I will be completely inaudible. So <laughs> I got to do, do the fast part of the podcast right now, but go ahead and stall while I take one last little sippy of this kentucky kiss stall go uh, michael how's it going pretty good that's cool if there is anything <laughs> in the realm of entertainment that you want to see us cover there are a couple ways that you can send us suggestions number one the easiest is to go to our website www.entertainthis.net uh slash et-podcast scroll all the way to the bottom there's a little questionnaire there that you can fill out get sent straight to us or you can just email us our email is entertain this podcast at gmail.com you also find us on twitter we are entertain underscore this on instagram we are entertain this podcast and on facebook we are podcast entertain this and as always entertain us so we can entertain you and you can entertain this don't drink bourbon in podcast see you next time bye 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 This episode of Entertain This was written by me, Nick Mustakangas, with additional commentary from Alex Steele and Michael Savoya. Our showrunner and resident fact checker was Chloe Price. Our theme music is Rush Bubble by Aaron Spencer, with interstitial music by DJW. Tune in every Friday for new episodes, and thanks for listening.